Motherhood is the stuff of childhood play and often adult anxieties. Today's guest unpacks the realities of motherhood in the United States today, the reasons for those anxieties, and the experience of mothers from various walks of life. She's Jessica Gross this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center. This week we're joined by Jessica Gross, an opinion writer for the New York Times. She's also recently published her third book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. She joins us today from New York. Jess, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You know, so I mentioned the book, uh, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. It's been published to rave reviews. Uh, give us a quick overview. So it follows the past 250 years of American history uh, and shows how we have built a society that makes parenting and specifically motherhood harder than it has to be. Well, it, it begins with a very candid reflection on your own pregnancy. And I, I was struck uh, that you describe yourself as a failed mother even before you actually gave birth. Um, that, that sort of uh, personal candid accounting of your own experience was, I thought, incredibly powerful. What led you to include it in the book? So I felt having gone through uh, falling short of many unreasonable ideals would frame the book in such a way that made it more relatable to a reader. Uh, it made it more accessible. Uh, it made me seem on the same level as all of this, the women that I interviewed. I interviewed about 100 contemporary moms for this book. Um, and I think having the personal experience uh, just lets you in, in a way. Um, and makes it seem more human. And I'm always striving with everything I write, uh, whether I include my personal story or not, just to get that sort of empathy and that humanity coming through. And um, I included my personal story just to show that, you know, even after doing all of this research for years, the ideals still affect me negatively. Um, I, I am not broken through from all of them, even after studying, talking to experts, it still weighs on me. So I think it was important to include my own perspective. So Jess, there is this idealized version of the perfect mother. And I think that's clear in, in, in the culture. What is the idealized version? What does this idealized perfect mother look like physically and how does she act? Both well, she does everything <laughs> with a smile, never complaining. Um, you know, the way I describe it in the book, she wakes up at 5 a.m. to meditate uh, and exercise because being mentally well and physically well is part of the purview. And so looking a certain way physically um, and then she is cooking breakfast for her kids. She is taking them to school. She is coming home. And if she works, she is achieving every second of the day and doing a bang up job at work. 
um, while continuing to, you know, make sure that all the meals are perfectly prepared and the craft projects are <laughs> are assembled <laughs> um, and then picking up the children and carting them to their sports practices. Um, there was this and this ideal uh, is not new. Um, I talk about a Saturday Night Live sketch from 1970, which suggests that for a mother to do all of the things that she is expected to do, she would need to be on speed. Um, so, um, it's even though it shape shifts um, depending on what the sort of what's in vogue that day um the ideas have been around for quite a while but it just does everything is everything to everyone and most importantly never complains about any of it so so where did this perfect mother model come from wait what are the historical roots it's not new as you've mentioned can so you tell us where it, where's been, go ahead it's been with us in some form for a very long time the idea that mothers should be self-sacrificing is thousands of years old. Um, but I think a real shift in the United States happened during the Industrial Revolution. Um, Pre-Industrial Revolution, families were all around the house. So the father was around the house. Um, there were siblings. People had enormous families. Uh, there was less of a division between mothers and fathers. And then once the Industrial Revolution happened, um, the inside the house became the domestic sphere with, where women reigned. And outside the house in the public world, that was the male sphere. And that's obviously oversimplifying hundreds of years of history. And women have always worked, especially women of color, immigrant women. But that's the sort of quick and dirty, you know, micro history. And so once women became associated with the domestic sphere, it became something that you could perfect. Um, and then when life expectancy increased for both women and children, um, you would expect that, oh, well, maybe some of the demands on mothers would loosen up. Um, but that's not what happened. Sort of more and different demands kind of built up over the 20th century. Uh, when women started entering the workforce um, in droves, there was sort of this idea um, that, okay, well, you can work, uh, but you still need to do everything at home at the same time. And while we have made some goal, some, some moves forward in terms of egalitarianism at home, uh, women are still doing the majority of childcare and domestic labor. Um, and so we've come to this place where moms are just supposed to do everything all the time and it's not tenable. And I think, the pandemic really exposed the ways in which it's not tenable. So talk about the reality. We've talked about the idealization, which is not true. Talk about the reality. Well, and maybe just to follow on what you, your last point there, Jess, is the, the, the consequences. What the, the, these, 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 this burden of expectations, what is it doing to women? Well, I think many mothers feel extremely isolated and unsupported. So also what's happened in the past say 50, 75 years, more and more people are living far away from family. They're not living in multi-generational households. I mean, through history until the very recent, you know, I don't know, you want to say 100 years, people lived in communities where child rearing, it's a cliche, but it took a village and it did take a village. It wasn't just expected to weigh on the nuclear family without help. Um, and so as a result, uh, 
moms are feeling incredibly isolated because not only are they supposed to manage the domestic sphere, the majority of moms work as well outside the home or work for pay since many of us work remotely now. Um, and so uh, it's made them exhausted, burnt out, um, unhappy. And I think the reason that I decided to focus on American motherhood is because the United States is unique in its low level of social support for families. So, you know, things like paid leave, which nearly every country in the world has, except for the United States, um, you know, government subsidized childcare, um, you know, just family friendly areas in cities, walkable cities, all these sorts of things make it harder to raise families in the United States um, compared to our peer nations. So why can't we do this? in the United States. It's a wealthy, wealthy country, wealthiest in it's the history of civilization, as, as you write about. Why? Yeah, well, it's expensive. It is expensive. Um, I always joke, you don't want the budget version of childcare, and uh, <laughs> nobody wants that. Everyone wants their children to be well cared for, and high-quality childcare is expensive as it should be, because the people who provide it are extremely skilled. Um, and so as a political issue, it's popular. These things are popular on paper. And then when they are put into practice in actual legislation, that's when everyone bulks because you can't sugarcoat how much it's going to cost. And we don't, as a country, prioritize families. And the sort of flip short explanation of why is we live in a very individualistic country. Um, the United States is more individualistic than most other nations. And, you know, there's, I'm, I don't think that's a complete negative, but it does mean that individual families are left to fend for themselves in a way that I don't think is good for society. You know, Jess, I, I, uh, you mentioned the hundred uh, women that you, nearly hundred women that you interviewed for the book. I'm curious how you found them. Uh, and they, they provide, I think, a great insight into the real lived experience that, that, that mothers are experienced today. But were there any that particularly stood out to you as sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, blowing your mind, for lack of a better term, uh, about the reality that some mothers are living? So how I found them, I put out calls on social media constantly for stories, specific kinds of stories about pregnancy, about early motherhood. And um, when there was a certain group that I felt was underrepresented in the storytelling, I would specifically go looking for that group. So go to organizations that maybe represented those groups and say, do you have anyone that can come talk to me? Um, and then one story that always sticks with me is a woman who had a secret baby during the pandemic. So she had been a remote worker pre, uh, pre-COVID and she got pregnant. She already had a child. This was a second child. And she just declined to tell her employer that she was pregnant. It was a contract job. She didn't have health insurance. So she was never going to have to say, oh, I have a new dependent. Um, and the baby was born. And she continued to work because it was a part-time contract job. She had a full secret baby. And the reason that she didn't tell her employers was because she felt she would be looked at differently. She was afraid that she would get the assignment taken away from her. Her family needed the money. And I felt like, one, that is just a bananas thing to happen. And secondly, I just felt it was such a searing indictment of the way that our workplaces treat pregnant women, uh, that you would prefer to have a secret baby 
then admit that you were pregnant, which on its face should be a joyful announcement. <laughs> so that's the one that most sticks out to me. Wow, that's just, that's crazy. Talk some more about the pandemic because the pandemic exposed the issues that, that you write about in your book to, to an extent that previously had not been there. Yeah, so obviously uh, every demographic struggled during 2020, especially. It was scary, it was novel, it was all of the structures of our lives just fell away. There just was, you know, so much grief and suffering. It was, you know, I, I don't wanna say parents were the only ones suffering. However, um, when all, all the structures that uphold our lives fell away uh, and mothers were expected to pick up the pieces, um, I think they felt such a range of emotions, including anger, deep anger, and it made a lot of mothers realize that how they had been living before was also not okay. So maybe it had been the subterranean feeling like, why is everything so hard? Why does everything feel like I'm having to reinvent the wheel just to get my child in daycare? And I think what the pandemic revealed was how poorly many of these systems were working even before they all fell away. Um, just something as simple as the fact that the school day does not match most people's work day. So you're already starting from a deficit um, when you want to start a family. Uh, and there's just this fundamental incompatibility that so many people are dealing with. And I think people just started reevaluating their lives and asking a lot of questions about why things are the way they are. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Jessica Gross, an accomplished author and opinion writer for the New York Times. Her new book is Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. You can follow Jess on Twitter at Jess Gross. That's J-E-S-S-G-R-O-S-E. -S -S -E. So if you had the power to change this, what would you do? What would the roadmap for change be? And then we can maybe get into whether that is even going to be politically feasible. You touched on that before. But what would you change specifically? So I think the number one thing that is most important to me is that these issues become not just mom issues. They need to become everybody issues because they are everybody issues. Everyone, almost everyone will have to provide care for somebody in their lives, whether it is an older family mother, member, whether it is a spouse, whether it is a friend, and there needs to be more social support for the ability to do that. And so the things that I think we most need um, to just even start with are things like universal health care and paid sick days. I mean, the fact that people there, I, I don't have the percentages off the top of my head, but 
you can't take a sick day without losing money, especially if you're an hourly worker. I know it was that issue in the uh, rail strike that happened earlier this year. Um, that should be a public health priority to let people not work when they're sick, <laughs> but it's not. So <laughs> yeah, there are think? some, you know, sort of basic human things that I think we should all have. And I think as a country, if we begin to frame these things as humane caregiving issues that are not just the purview of parents, because where I see this discussion getting bogged down is, well, you chose to have children. This is your problem. Um, and I think it is such a narrow and ugly way to view what is a pretty typical part of the human experience. Um, but I, I, having written about these issues for a decade, every time I write about any of this, I get that feedback. Yeah. You all chose this. Why do I have to pay for your children? Um, but it's part of living in a society. And I think when we take it away from just being a mother issue, a parent issue, and make it in more of an everybody issue um, and show how it is beneficial to everyone, um, I think that is the place to start. But if there is one thing that I think is politically feasible and that I am optimistic about happening, at least in my lifetime, is paid leave at the federal level. Um, it's a lot less expensive than childcare. Um, they see that the birth rate is declining over time. And I think most people see it as a societal good to keep the birth rate at least at replacement. So, you know, there's things... I think paid leave is both a political and budgetary winner because it's a lot less expensive than childcare. Just you know, so the 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 screaming on the inside title. I we we, we were, when we were chatting before we started taping, I told you that I I loved the the tone of your writing because there's a wit about it, and the screaming on the inside sort of captures that. Uh, but it, it's also a very serious message, which is why are, and this has been going on for centuries, why are women screaming on the inside? And should they be screaming on the outside too? Would, 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 would more voices saying what you're saying maybe help move the needle? I mean, I wish, but it doesn't <laughs> seem to be working so far. I mean, as I note in the book, a book like my book gets written every five years. Every five years with different details and different people, what differentiates my book is, you know, the pandemic being sort of an inciting incident and the how deep I go into the history. But again, I read all of these books in preparation for writing my book. Women have been saying this for a long, long time and no one has been listening to them, which is part of why they are screaming on the inside because doing it on the outside doesn't seem to move the needle in a way that we would like. Um, so I do think having male allies is really important. Um, and I think, again, like I said, moving it from just a mother issue and, and making it more of a societal priority is what I would love to see happen. Um, and, you know, just in terms of trying to at least have a little bit of levity and joy and even talking about serious issues. Um, nothing is funnier than parenting. My children make me laugh every single day. And um, I think it's important to really emphasize the fact that even as many mothers are saying that this is, this is harder than it needs to be, they are all 
really happy to be parents. I think that there's this misnomer that if you are pointing out things that could be improved, that means that you hate being a mother, you don't love your children. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think most of the people I spoke to, um, and myself included, we want to make a better society for our children. And that is why we are pointing these things out and, and talking about them so honestly. Well, so we, uh, we've mentioned that you're also an opinion writer for the New York Times, and I want to maybe talk to you about some of those recent columns. The, the, your voice is, is, comes through in each of these pieces, uh, but there's one recent uh, piece titled Stop, Threatening, excuse me, Stop Treating Adolescent Girls as Emotionally Abnormal. And I wonder if you could maybe explain the piece a little bit for our audience, but also the overall approach that you take seems to be to, 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 to turn the volume down a little bit on some of the screaming headlines. Is that, is that interpretation right, and why do you do that? Absolutely. So that piece in particular, there was a CDC report that came out earlier this year that suggested that teenagers weren't doing well mentally in the fall of 2021, which is when those statistics were gathered, um, when that polling was done, uh, and that they were doing markedly worse than in previous years, that there is a rise in depression and anxiety among teenage girls. Um, and a lot of the headlines I was seeing about it were just like, this is a crisis, everyone panic. Um, and I dug really deeply into the statistics and I just felt that they were not telling the whole story of what it is like to be a teenager um, or taking the long view of the fact that every generation panics about its teenagers. Um, I went back into the Times archives and I found articles from every decade since the 50s saying there's a rise in anxiety among teenagers. There was one from 1961 that suggested that um, high schoolers were very anxious and depressed over getting into college. Um, so I wanted to just take a step back and say, first of all, this was a poll that was taken in fall 2021 when kids were going back to school that was not the same as it was before the pandemic started. Um, they might have felt isolated in that moment. A lot of people were still feeling really isolated and upset. So sort of just contextualizing the numbers and also saying that the way these questions are asked um, might not show boys who need help. Because I talked to a psychologist who said, if you ask boys who are not doing well, if they are anxious and depressed, they probably will say no. But if you ask them if they're angry, they will say yes. Um, so I just wanted to come at it from a little bit of a different angle um, and sort of show that, you know, I don't think that being sad is necessarily a bad thing. If you are saying that you're sad in response to a situation that is in fact quite sad, that seems healthy to me. And that's not to diminish things like suicide, suicidal ideation. Those are incredibly serious and we need to treat them as such. But I just think it is very important as parents and as a society that we have our children feel like there's nothing wrong with having feelings that are not happy and shiny all the time. Is, is there and, a... Oh, wait, I just wanted to answer yeah, the ahead. second question. Which, yeah. um, I mean, in terms of how I approach my subjects, um, I'm always really trying to show different angles that I haven't read already and also also show the counter arguments. Um, I am 
completely fallible. No one is infallible. And I try to really take seriously all of the arguments, no matter what I'm writing about, that don't agree with my take. And I always try to really bolster it with as much factual data as I can. Um, it's still an opinion column. I have opinions. I have so many opinions. <laughs> Too many, possibly. <laughs> but I just always try to ground them in fact. Um, so it's just really important to me to sort of take a step back, try to be a little nuanced. Um, I think we live in such a polarized moment, um, and I want to do what I can to not contribute to that. You know, uh, speaking of polarized moments, you've got another recent piece about Nikki Haley. Uh, the headline is, Nikki Haley's resume is perfect, it might not matter. Um, yeah, what I'm curious about here is what does that piece tell us about, I guess, the Republican Party, but what does it tell us about uh, American politics and the role of female candidates in American politics more broadly? So the way I analyzed it, I think right now there are kind of two lanes to run as a candidate of any gender. So there is the charisma lane where you are not talking about your policy background. You are not talking about your experience. You are just out there running on your personality. Um, I think Donald Trump is the obvious uh, example for this. But for women, I think Sarah Palin was the probably the most successful at running just on her, you know, X factor, whatever you want to call it, as being a compelling personality. Um, and then the other lane is being a workhorse, saying, you know, I have all of this experience. I have, you know, foreign policy experience. I have been a governor. I've been a senator. Um, and Nikki Haley is, is an example of this. Kamala Harris. There's tons of very successful female politicians. Um, the argument I was making in the piece was it's much harder for women to run on the pure charisma lane uh, because they it is so much easier for them to get shot down as unserious, uh, not having what it takes to have an executive leadership job. And we haven't really seen any woman be successful doing it. Um, and we haven't seen anyone be successful running for president as a woman yet. So um, I think the necessity of having that sort of charismatic, um, larger than life uh, aspect to your campaign is just much harder for women to pull off in a, a country as big and varied as ours. Um, and that has pockets of, you know, deep misogyny. And so I think for Democrats, it's easier. For Republicans, Nikki Haley, who is, you know, again, I would not vote for her. I am not a fan of her. But on paper, extremely experienced. She has the foreign policy piece. She was a governor. Um, she is self-made. Um, you know, many things to admire about her, even if you don't agree with her politics. Uh, but the way uh, the sort of culture war issues are really t just get you so much press having that sort of more resume-driven, calmer personality is just not going to be a winner for you. Uh, Jess, we could talk to you all day, uh, but we're out of time. Uh, she's Jessica Gross. The book is Screaming on the Inside. You can also see her twice a week uh, in the New York Times. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on PellCenter.org or look for us on social media. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time more story in the public square.